0: Now we're going to read the scriptures. The first reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, page 1180 in our church Bibles. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: And our Gospel reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5. You can find it if you want to on page 968 in the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said...
2: So um, this talk is part of a three-part series, mini-series, that has been initiated by the Bishop of Oxford, who wants us to look at three aspects of the Beatitudes and how that will affect us as, a, as churches, as individuals, as deaneries and as a diocese. And this first week is about contemplation. The next week is about compassion, and the last week about courage and they take a few verses from the Beatitudes for each so rather than start at the Beatitudes I thought it would be helpful to look at what contemplative might mean um, because it's it's not like a word we use a lot in everyday English and then we'll work through that and get to the Beatitudes at the end because I think starting the other way around is a bit complicated so let's see if I can remember this. Ah, brilliant. So contemplative, uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, um, involves expressing or involving prolonged thought, or maybe silent, deep silent prayer or religious meditation. When we talked about this in home group on Wednesday, there was a bit of a shiver that ran through the spine of everybody in the group when we looked at this slide, and um, Everyone sort of thought, ooh, that doesn't sound much fun. We live in a very, very fast-paced world where we have internet communications to mean that we can make hotel reservations in San Francisco more or less in real time. We expect to be able to chat to people wherever they are, whatever they're doing, you know. You even hear mobile phones being answered in the gent's slews at work, and there is no sacred space almost now. Uh, so we're in this frenetic world. You know, even, if, even at home, you're expected to pick up your work mobile. And So the, the idea of, of prolonged anything, slow-burn anything, whether it's slow-burn food or, or quick food or fast food, we're, we're in a very fast world, and a lot of these things make us recoil, So rather than look at those things, I think actually that in the scriptures, what we see as contemplation breaks down into some other words. Look, wait, seek, and listen. And that's around those three topics is how the talk's going to fall into into divisions this morning. So look... Um, this image came up as number one on Google image search for contemplative, which I thought was... <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. But I love this monkey or gorilla. He's just got that dignity of, uh, of an older monkey. But he's looking, he's looking wistfully into the distance. And I think this actually, I know it's funny, but it, it, it comes a little bit to what contemplation actually is. It's a look and a gaze... I think gaze would have been a better word for me to use here. In Hebrews twelve, one to 2 it says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And that's one of the first things about contemplation. It's not um or emptying a mind or some kind of mindful just stilling. It's a focus. It's to someone, it's not just reflecting on me. It's certainly not reflecting on me. That's the opposite of really contemplating God. So it's a fixing our eyes on Jesus. When you run a, a, a 5K, like the, the park run at, down at Thames Valley Park, uh, you're running for about half an hour. Depending on how good you are, and and all that time you're thinking kind of vaguely about the finishing line, but the whole process in itself is pleasurable, stroke painful, and um, and and yet you've always got this look in your in the back of your mind. You're doing one thing which is running, but in the back of your mind you're always focused on the end point, and I think that end point is is the Lord Jesus. Uh, his father and the Holy Spirit. And uh, here's a really good quote from a a great authority on this sort of subject, a guy called A.W. Tozer, who published this book 70 years ago this year after writing it basically on on an all-night train journey in one day. The book's called The Pursuit of God, and and we've got a few copies on the bookstool. Now, if faith is the gaze of the heart at God, and if this gaze is... But the raising of the inward eyes to meet the all seeing eyes of God, then it follows that it is one of the easiest possible things to do. It would be like God to make the most vital thing easy and to place it within the range of possibility for the weakest and poorest of us. So that's look. And I think that underpins the, these other two. It's looking to Jesus. The second one is be still and wait on him. I think this one is one of the hardest ones to accept because it involves stopping. It involves laying aside our agenda, what we'd like to be doing, what YouTube videos we'd like to be looking at, what, what news we'd want to be browsing, what food we want to be eating, what what activities we'd like to do. And none of us like waiting at traffic lights or waiting at a pelican crossing like that. So it it comes out in quite a few characters in the scriptures. One of the earliest ones is in in, in the life of Moses. Well, I suppose you could say it happened there in Abraham and before that. Um, Just after the Israelites were leaving, um, after they left Egypt proper, and were about to cross the Red Sea, the Egyptian army decided to change their mind and wouldn't let them go, and they bore down on them, and it was one of probably the Israelites' scariest moments in the whole thing. They were trapped. The sea was on one side, the Egyptians on the other. And Moses told them a message from God, "'Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today.'" The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need be still. What a message. Uh, What an unpopular message. Be still. What would you do? You just like, which way should we go? How are we going to escape? Can we build a, dig a hole underground? Can we hide? You know, can we, can we run? Can we hire some troops from somewhere else? Can we escape? No, Moses said, stop, just stop. But be still and focus on the Lord. Very counterintuitive, but the right thing to do at that point. And then you see it all over the Psalms, all over them. Not just the Psalms that David wrote, but all the worship leaders who also lived in during his time, who um, who he uh, were his associates. All of the Psalm writers tend to write about this. So. Uh, in Psalm 37 verse 7 be still before the lord why just to cogitate no wait patiently for him do not fret when people succeed in their ways for they uh, when they carry out their wicked schemes Psalm 46 verse 10 be still why know that i am god I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Sometimes I think we've got um, things that have been on our hearts for days, months, years sometimes. Things that have been longed for. Things perhaps like um, waiting for a child to come along when when one doesn't come along or um, sometimes waiting for something that God has told you that you haven't yet seen become a reality. And during those times of waiting, it can seem like you've been forgotten. I'm sure Martin has felt some of this. Um, and this is not the time to give up. That lovely song that we sang last Sunday um, uh, that begins, There is strength within the sorrow, there's beauty in our tears, um, relates to that weight where God is sovereign. And we don't know all the answers, but just keep holding on. carrying on. Psalm 5, verse 3. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Um, Back in the mid-80s, I worked as a watchman, as a volunteer, during Billy Graham's campaign in Sheffield. Me and another student were supposed to be guarding this extremely valuable piece of video equipment. Uh, they had a professional security guard as well and it was the middle of summer and the nights were very short and we got round to about 4am and it was light and we thought, we've done our job now no one's going to nick this screen it's just like huge on wheels and um, it's just not going to go now but we had to stay around till 7 but those hours just oh, it just seemed to take forever uh, Psalm 40 verse 1 which was put to music by you two in the 80s, as, as the song 40, which is pretty well word for word for, for the psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. And Psalm 131, verse 2. But I have calmed and quietened myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. I don't know whether you've ever seen breastfed babies desperate for food, or even bottle-fed babies as well. But they, they just, they go frantic about getting the, their food. But once they have gone through that point of weaning, they're able to wait, they've got something more, um, their guts have developed and they're able to handle solid food and, and it, it kind of lasts longer inside them. Um, and that's that maturity that God's looking for in us to be weaned children, to be able to um, to, to endure, to, to to not be frantic when we're waiting for him. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? In some ways it seems like it's a very negative thing, just doing nothing. But I like this image because it makes me think about what I would like someone to do if they were waiting on me. I'd like someone who is waiting on me not to just be like filing their nails or looking into space. I'd like them to be um, available to me, skilled, like this guy who's here ready to park your car. He's um, he's looking to the customer. Are you ready for me to park your car now? Um, I'm ready to help you. Uh, he's ready for action He's at the customer's disposal. He's not thinking about his time. He's thinking about your time, about making you happy. hes He just wants... In, this is just what we do in worship. This is... We're making ourselves available to God. And we want to be here for him. Uh, and this is what I think, waiting on the Lord, even if it's a period of silence, even if it's a period of um, uh, prolonged prayer, then... This is, I think, what waiting on the Lord means. And paradoxically, sometimes waiting can mean advancing. In Isaiah verse forty, chapter forty, rather, we see this well-known passage about those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. How they'll rise up on wings like eagles. How they'll run and uh, and not be faint. And we'll be thinking of that for you next uh, two weeks, time pads, as you run the marathon. And Paul as well. Um, the third um, metaphor is seeking and listening. And this happens particularly, I think, in the, um, the things that came to my mind, were the things I, I spoke on in November when we were looking at, at Daniel and his prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Um, He'd was he been looking in the scriptures. He'd found that the exile of the Jewish people to uh, Babylon was only going to last 70 years. That had been foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah had learned the hard way. No one really wanted to hear his message. He was telling them that their kingdom was doomed. They were all going to be sent to Babylon. And there was nothing they could really do at that point to stop it. And they just needed to accept it, go there, serve out their sort of period of exile, and then return later. But nobody wanted to listen to that. No, 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 we'll get around this, we'll fight off this mega army, it won't be a problem. And in these private times that Jeremiah had with God, God told him this, Call to me and I will answer you, and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. So he was calling him, uh, Jeremiah into a very deep and intimate fellowship with him of seeking that then led to um, this response from God. And I think that's also part of contemplation, not just waiting, not just being stilled, but being active, seeking what God's looking for, and then listening, which is also kind of quite active. This is another verse that that... Um, we often quote um, from that period, uh, from that um, book of Jeremiah and from that very period of history. It relates to the 70 years of, Bab- uh, uh, of exile happening in Babylon. God saying, I will come and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's purpose for the exile was not to make the Israelites just suffer, but it was to give them a wake-up call that meant that they would actually do what they were supposed to do in the first place, which was seek the Lord. That um, pattern of uh, seeking, possibly in prayer, maybe as a result of reading scripture, like Daniel did. He read in in Jeremiah. Then he prayed about it. Then he had visions from God. That cycle is something else I, I mentioned back in um, in November. And and it, it, that this is the the, the detail of it it's on the slide there. Daniel was reading. He was praying in a habitual, cleansed, renewed, motivated way. And then God was answering him, giving him vision for the future, and uh, showing him the realities that were to come. How does this all relate to the Beatitudes? And that's, um, that's a, a stormy day on Lake Galilee, apparently. Looks quite nice. Uh, last night, I was in this... Uh, at the uh, Hexagon Theatre for Next Level 2018, which is a youth event for the whole of Berkshire. And it was just so, so exciting. Um, The downstairs was all packed out with young people and youth leaders. And at the end, uh, the guy who gave the talk invited young people to come to the front if they've never accepted the Lord before. And uh, more than 60 young people came down to the front. And this was the sort of minute moment about... um, Half past nine last night, when all these guys were being prayed for in, in the theatre, it was just so so exciting. But I think the and that was a moment of repentance for those uh, young people. And in, just before we get to the Beatitudes, we read in in Matthew. You can't really see it on some of these others, but from that time on, Jesus began to preach, "Repent." For well, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then next chapter deals with the Beatitudes. So I was thinking, when, I, when you look at the Beatitudes, they're in this context of Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is near, repent. How does that then inform how we read the Beatitudes? Because they're quite cryptic. They're quite enigmatic, as are many of Jesus' public statements. And we could sort of take them possibly several ways, and they may be applicable several ways as well. The first one that has been allocated to this particular topic is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think that 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 relates to this repentance of being coming to the point where you know that you have you failed before God you have not um, lived up to everything that he would like you to, to do, to his standard, and you come to him in sorrow. And at that point, in that poverty, you win the jackpot. You receive his forgiveness. You receive his new life. You receive that relationship with the Father that becomes possible um, because of Christ's death on the cross. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I think at that point of repentance, that's when we also have to kind of hand over all that's ahead of us. Because God isn't just interested in us saying sorry for the past, but then going back to our regular way of acting, he wants us to walk in newness of life, a changed life. So that means handing over all we know of the future, all that we know of our money, of our talents, of our stuff, the stuff that's so wedded to us um, deep in our hearts that we, we hand over to him. And it's in that that I think that that's an aspect of meekness. And I think it's, that's the point when actually we inherit the earth. That's when we inherit everything, when we actually lose our grip on our most cherished possession in tozer's book he's got a whole chapter on how abraham was called by god to sacrifice isaac and he says god could have chosen to have started with the little things around the edge of abraham's life and made him hand those over first before getting to the most valuable one but no god didn't want abraham to have a long drawn out time of pain and suffering, of, of handing over. He went straight for the one that was precious, and that, that was Isaac, his only son, long awaited. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I think there in that repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God, there is a purification that we can't do ourselves It's a purification that enables us to have a relationship and to in some way see God. How does that, how does all this stuff talk about repentance relate to contemplation? Well, I think part of the weight on God, the look to Him, which should be a reflexive action, whether we're busy washing up, doing housework, um, in our job, whatever we're doing not just times of prayer. I think in those moments, I think that in order to come to God, to wait on him, to look to him and to be still, we have to first know that cleansing. Not like the first time we were cleansed and and had never come to him before, but that regular cleansing that we need that repentance that we, that's actually a lifestyle in a way more than just a one-off event. Maybe for some people here, the whole idea of prayer and waiting on God is something completely new. And like in November when I showed this slide, uh, I, I'm showing it again, we have a little booklet called Try Praying on the Bookstall. Um, And it's also available as a phone app. Um, You may find it helpful as an introduction to prayer, as a way of getting into praying and beginning, taking small steps and tasting and seeing that
0: the Lord is good. Thank you.